Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is author and journalist Leo Adam Bega. In the show, Bega talks about the craft and the business of writing, what makes for a good story, and what he has learned about others and himself in his long writing career. I think of myself as an interviewer and storyteller first. I think of myself as a writer and journalist second. And I think of myself as a reporter, a distant third. <laughs> I don't claim to be the greatest reporter in the world. I can certainly do that, but that's not my thing. For me, storytelling, I have to connect, at least at an emotional level, with a subject if I feel like I'm gonna really do the subject justice. Author, journalist, blogger, and public speaker, Leo Adam Beeger, is an Omaha native known for his writing reporting on arts, culture, sports, and social justice subjects. For four decades, he has been a regular freelance contributing writer for numerous publications and media platforms. Beeger was awarded an International Journalism Grant for a 2015 reporting trip to Africa, and is the author of four non-fiction books, including Alexander Payne, his journey in film, and Crossing Bridges, a priest's uplifting life among the downtrodden. He's currently working on two new non-fiction books due for 2023 release. One project chronicles the eventful life of Afghan refugee Cyrus Jaffrey. The other project explores the extraordinary life story of Norfolk, Nebraska, obstetrician Dr. Keith Verbicki, who only a year removed from a heart transplant, is back practicing medicine and delivering babies. Leo Adam Bega, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. So it, it feels fitting, given, I think, your renown as a storyteller, to begin at the beginning. So could I ask you just to share a little bit about your childhood? Sure. Yeah, glad to. Um, so I grew up in North Omaha, and uh, most members of my extended family, Italian-American on my mother's side, uh, Polish-American on my father's side, lived in South Omaha or South, at least south of downtown, but actually most in South Omaha proper. And so that became impactful in my life in what I ended up doing in this sense. So I come very much from blue collar labor stock. As I was growing up in Northeast Omaha, uh, 42nd and Maple in the Holy Name Parish, uh, I was raised Catholic. Basically, as a child, the neighborhood was all white. And then the white flight phenomenon uh, became a thing in the uh, late 60s. Um, and then it just proceeded on. And so um, I actually lived at home uh, until my uh, late 20s, early 30s. That's a whole other story. And the neighborhood um, became uh, mixed, blended, um, interracial. And so I would, I would hear comments and just pick up on attitudes um, that were less than positive about, about African-Americans. And my parents would almost always be interrogated. That's what it felt like. And I felt very bad for them. Um, why are you still living there? How can you live with them? My my parents, you know, they they kind of stood their ground, and and they and they said, you know, look, you know, this is this is where we choose to live, and these are our neighbors, and so this became impactful eventually when I became a journalist in terms of why a segment of my reporting and writing has been devoted to the African American community in Omaha. I'm thinking about that and staying just for the moment with your childhood and and your youth, and wondering in what ways perhaps stories, narratives, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but that idea of storytelling, how did that show up in your earlier years? No, that's a good question. Um, all I can say is that, I mean, the thought of being a writer never occurred to me as a child. It didn't occur to me until I think high school, and even then very tangentially. And it was really placed in my head by a couple teachers. 
my, I have two older brothers, and I kind of inherited their English lit books that they had in high school. We all went to the same high school, and you know, but you know, I was years behind them. So by the time I got to high school, they had already graduated. I had a little mini library because of them at home, and I would delve into those books, and I would be exposed to, in some cases, writers that I didn't end up being exposed to in my own high school lit classes because some years had passed, things had changed, whatever the case may be. And uh, they also collected comic books, uh, Marvel in particular. And so that became a, a true uh, uh, storytelling uh, lesson. And, um, and then I was attracted, as I mean, most of us are, to movies at a fairly young age. I was weird. I didn't go to movies at the theater almost ever growing up, but I watched a lot of movies on television, and I felt this, I remember feeling this kinship with certain stories, you know, told cinematically, and I remember the overwhelming feelings I would have watching, say, for the first time on the waterfront, and not knowing even what these feelings were necessarily, and just and, I, and at the time, because my older brothers had already left the house or, you know, whatever the case may be, and I, I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody in my life growing up about these things. What happened was, this was also very impactful on who I became and what I do for a living. At the high school, Holy Name High School, which no longer exists, the, the grade school still does, Holy Name High School, there was a uh, teacher by the name of Michael Cranick. And Michael Cranick had taught my brothers before me. He taught, uh, I believe he taught English. He he'd certainly taught journalism. And he taught the most remarkable film history and appreciation class you can imagine. It was definitely college level. Um, and so he's a great film uh, um, historian, uh, film appreciator, film buff. So what would happen was the very films, in some cases, that I was being exposed to on television at home, they were filling me with these overwhelming feelings that I knew I was watching something that was important and that was changing me and certainly affecting me. He would screen some of those same films as fate would have it. Now, he was affirming what I was had been seeing at home and didn't know what to do with, and he gave me a platform through his class to talk about these things or to write about these things. So why is that important? Well, I ended up um, uh, being a film programmer at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. So I ran the campus film series as a student and as a graduate for like 13 years. It was a huge part of my young adulthood. And I, mean, I screened many, many, many hundreds of movies during that, that span. And it was, I was so passionate about it, it affected my GPA. I, I spent far more time and felt far more invested in doing that than, you know, uh, really taking that seriously, some of my journalism classes or other classes that I had to take as requirements. Um, but the good thing is there was this marriage happening. So because I was programming the series, I was also publicizing it. So that meant I had to write press releases and public service announcements. And I was doing this when I was 23, 22, 21. And so that became a training ground for me. So off air, you shared that you, in some ways, see yourself more as an interviewer than a storyteller. For now, I'm going to ask you about storytelling. So what makes for a good story? Well, you know, I think that answer is going to be slightly different, of course, uh, uh, with anyone you ask that question of. And, you know, and, and it's, it's quite true. I, you and I can be given the exact same parameters for an assignment. We could even be given the same template of content to work with. Let's say we have the exact, well, let's just say that we have generally the same content to work with. Somehow, we're going to write two very different stories. Now, why is that? <laughs> because storytelling is intensely personal. I think of myself as an interviewer and storyteller first. 
I think of myself as a writer and journalist second. And I think of myself as a reporter, a distant third. <laughs> I don't claim to be the greatest reporter in the world. I can certainly do that thing, but that's not my thing. So for me, storytelling, I have to connect, at least at an emotional level, with a subject if I feel like I'm going to really do the subject justice. And that can be a person. Um, that can be an organization. It can be an event. It can be anything, whatever the assignment is. Because remember, I'm a journalist, right? So um, my assignments don't come out of my imagination. They are given to me because they're nonfiction, right? Assignments about real people, real events. And then so what, then, what becomes then the content that I gather to work from to create the story? Well, it's interview-based. So the interview is everything, more or less. Now, that being said, because of the age we live in, with the access we have to vast amounts of information via the internet, um, my job is easier in some ways and profoundly more complex in other ways. And so I spend far more time on a given piece today, let's say, a, let's just say an 800-word assigned feature story for a magazine or newspaper, far more time in general, not always, today than I would have would have with the same assignment 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because the information that's available, there's more of it, and I feel obligated now to suss it out, which is, okay, that's great, but at a certain point, you're working under time pressures. So you have to call an end to the research process, even though you really may not have sussed everything out that you could have, because you can't. <laughs> you can't get to everything. And at a certain point, it, it may be counterproductive, especially if you're talking about a piece of that length. And let's say you, you were given the assignment three weeks ago, and all of a sudden your deadline is looming before you. And the reality is I'm a, I'm a working writer. And there's more of us than you might think that there are in the metro. But what does that mean? That means I'm working on multiple projects, more or less always. And sometimes I might be working on five, six, seven projects at various stages um, at the same time. And so, you know, um, it, it comes down to what is it about that subject that either appeals to me or that um, is speaking to me and how how do I feel I want to share what I'm excited about or what I'm interested about with whoever the reader is on the other end. I, I want to dig a little deeper then yeah. into this because you've talked about what I think of in some ways as these external pressures, these practical pressures, doing the work, getting paid, being commissioned, turning up. I first want to talk about, though, something you said, which is you need to, and I think to be able to really hit the story in in its most potent way to feel an emotional connection with the subject and i really want to see if we can get to that magic so how do you get to that magical connection well sometimes that connection doesn't happen i mean again back to practical realities i mean not every assignment is going to trip my trigger at the end of the day some of the assignments are just assignments now, as a professional, I still want to do justice to that right assignment to the best of my abilities without being, you know, uh, terribly excited about it, perhaps. But, you know, again, um, get the facts right and, and try to draw the reader in, right, through whatever mechanisms I, I choose to use. I guess what I'm really saying is that for those assignments that do uh, move me for whatever reason, if, whether it's a social justice thing or it's a sports thing or it's a, it's a profile piece, whatever the case may be, um, if I can find that in, or it, maybe it finds me and maybe it's, it's somewhere in between, right? This may be totally my imagination. At least I'm convincing myself <laughs> that I, I'm feeling more passionate about it. And I think certainly in, in some cases, I, I, you know, I absolutely am. And then I just feel like, it's not something that's being imposed on me or that I'm having to force. Do you know what I'm saying? It's something now that seems more natural, 
more uh, organic, and something that I'm leading out of more of a, let's say, a feeling of satisfaction and, and, and wanting to share. It's like the eagerness of wanting, I want to share this story. And there are some stories like that. I know that I get assigned, and I probably can't think of any specific examples now, where I am so eager to share that story with others because it grabbed me, even maybe just in the, uh, the way it was presented to me by my editor. A lot of people ask me, do you come up with your own stories or do editors come up with the stories for you? And so over the course of my career, uh, generally I come up with my own assignments, like 90% of the time, something like that. That said, there are those occasions when something is offered to me and that I accept. And, you know, and some of those can be every bit as, as exciting as the ones that I have generated out of my own enthusiasm or, you know. So in, in a sense, it doesn't really matter. It just comes down to what is it that appeals to me and then how do I feel, because it's going to be different for every writer, how do I feel the story needs to be shared with, with readers? Do you know going in what you think the heart of that story is going to be? And dare I say, too, what you feel like that emotional connection might be? Or is it something that emerges in the interaction between you and the person that you're interviewing? It can work in all those different ways. Here's how it generally works in my case. So uh, let's say it's a piece that I have generated, the, the idea for the story. I've pitched it to an editor. The editor has accepted it. And so there may be some parameters or guides from the editor as to what he or she wants or the direction or the angle. I may not be able to articulate it at the time in depth but um, I, I do have a sense for what I think is the core of the story. What is the meat of the story? What is the, the juice, right? And uh, so I will have a sense of that going in. Then from that, I'll maybe get a stronger sense or a more clarified sense. But then it really only becomes um, foundational for me once I've transcribed the interview, which I do myself. Because so now I've, I've done the research before the interview. I've done maybe a little thinking about what this might be down the road when I turn it into a story. And then there's the interview experience itself. And then there's the transcription process and experience. So it's really out of all of that, eventually, when I'm ready to write, I have my array of files up on my computer screen. Now, I just kind of go by feel. So because I feel like after I've gone through the transcription, I've absorbed the material and I kind of know what's there. And I, I find those quotes that I think absolutely have to be in the piece. And sometimes it, it, it becomes like a, a puzzle. And I'll start selecting out the quotes that I know are going to need to end up in the story. And I'll build the story around those. Sometimes I do it that way. Sometimes without even looking at the transcription file. I mean, I've done the transcription. So I've gone through the process. But I, I've set it aside. I'm not looking at it right now. Based on memory and feeling and gut, I'll write an intro to the story. And then that'll lead to how now I'm going to start inserting quotes. Now, of course, some stories, it's one individual being quoted. It's one source. It's a single source story. Sometimes it might be two sources. It might be three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve. It, it depends on the assignment and the project. But that's kind of how I approach it. Do you find yourself coming back, as you look at your stories, as you, as you look at your interests, coming back to particular kinds of stories that you're trying to hear and then to share? Yeah. I fashioned a, my tagline around it, which maybe I should change, but it's still as true today as it's always been. So it goes something like, I write stories about people, their passions, and their magnificent obsessions. And so... That's what I'm plugging into the ulti at the end of the day. And, and, it, and that passion can be about anything. I mean, it's often arts culture related, but not necessarily so. And so that's the buzz that I'm looking for. Sometimes I don't even know I'm looking for it. And then just by doing internet searches or being on social media, you'll see something, a headline will catch you, whatever it might be. 
and and it's like you know the, the the light bulb goes on or whatever and i know it's a subject that i have an interest in personally and generally i only write for myself which i don't know if that's a good thing or uh, a bad thing but my experience has told me if i'm satisfying myself i think i'm enough of a representative audience myself that it's going to appeal to most people you know there there might be some nuances around that based on the particular subject where maybe i'll take an approach depending on that particular subject i want to go in a certain direction or i want to use a certain style that might be a little bit out of my comfort zone and that's okay um, and and I'm doing a little bit of experimenting at that that time, but I think I fall into probably a fairly consistent pattern of how I approach stories and even how my stories read. I certainly recognize my own work. Whether anybody else, from story to story to story, recognizes a Leo Adam Biga story, I don't know. Some people have told me they do. It's also my experience that most people pay absolutely no attention to the byline. Um, and so I'm not sure if, if most instances people have any idea who's written the story. yet. Because you have to remember, being a feature writer, you know, I'm not a columnist. So it's not like I have a regular space, right, that people can expect a Leo Adam Biga story in. It doesn't work that way. I, I have things appear intermittently and unexpectedly and inconsistently in, in many different publications on many different platforms. I'm aware of a certain style. Could I describe it? myself no but i know it when i read it and see it you're quite well known for writing about for example alexander payne i'm curious if the fame or you know esteem in which the people you're interviewing are held in in the public sphere if you as an interviewer approach the interaction differently or if you feel as if there's some sense that your interaction or the way you engage with a subject is consistent or inconsistent depending upon mm. who that person is. I think it's pretty consistent. Now, you and I were talking before uh, we got on air. Even all these years doing this, um, I can still find myself intimidated by certain interview subjects. And maybe it has something to do with their fame or their personality or combination thereof. One of the times that stands out to me, I, most recently, it happened with the, the playwright and director, uh, David Mamet. Right? I interviewed him for American Theater Magazine. At the end of the interview and really after having some time to reflect on that experience and then transcribing the interview, you know, I had more than one occasion to say almost out loud to myself in my office, that was a really stupid question. And thank God he he didn't call you an idiot and he was so kind just to uh, overlook uh, maybe a lapse that I made or why didn't I ask him this as a follow-up? This would have been the absolute logical follow-up. Why didn't I call him on this when he – and I, that also happened re recently with another uh, eminent uh, American theater director, Robert O'Hara, who directed Slave Play uh, on Broadway which won the Tony, I believe, for, for Best Drama. And uh, he's the director of the Malcolm X Opera, which is touring the United States and just played in Omaha. And, uh, and again, I, I felt, myself, felt myself overwhelmed a bit um, and a little bit intimidated, uh, not as much as I did with Mamet, because uh, O'Hara's reputation doesn't precede him quite like uh, Mamet's does. So that still happens, and all that... At the end of the day, Stuart, it just reminds me I'm human. It's not a bad thing to still be scared or to still be intimidated. It gives you a certain edge, which can be helpful, actually. Um, maybe it gives you a certain acuity, and it makes you want to do better, where you felt I could have done better. What's the story or interview that, conversely, you feel as if, despite the circumstances, you really landed it, maybe even to your own surprise. Well, you admit, since you mentioned Alexander Payne, consistently I've been satisfied with the interviews that I've conducted with him. Now, he's arrived at a certain place 
where there's some controversy around him having to do with certain um, allegations made against him by, by an actress, uh, which he's responded to uh, publicly. And I, I, I'm pretty sure he doesn't really want to respond anymore. Now, he owes me an interview, <laughs> actually a series of interviews, based on his new feature film project, The Holdovers, starring Paul Giamatti. And uh, I haven't seen anything of the film, which he's nearing completion in terms of editing. It's a brilliant script. It is the quintessential Alexander Payne film, and it is the part of a lifetime for Paul Giamatti. I don't think I will be too bold in saying that, assuming that Alexander Payne has done a credible job of executing the script, bringing it to life, that Paul Giamatti is likely to get a lot of acclaim for this performance because you read it in page after page, line after line, and it was literally written for Paul Giamatti. And it, so a great, a great American actor, that might be the role he's best remembered for ultimately. Well, nobody obviously can predict that. That film is not to be released, I just found out recently, until the fall of 2023. You're four decades in, so you've had a long career. What was it at the beginning of your career that motivated you to think that being a freelance interviewer, storyteller, writer, journalist was the career path that you wanted to dedicate yourself to? Well, let me go back to Mike Cranick at Holy Name. <laughs> Though he, he's the gentleman who had this astounding film history and appreciation class at this very poor inner city high school in Northeast Omaha. So he is also the one who pushed me into journalism. So he was the editor of the, or not the editor, the advisor for the school newspaper and the yearbook, and I worked on those things. He's the one who urged me to study journalism in college. So he's basically responsible for the two things that have taken up most of my working life, journalism and film. And of course, at a certain point, those two things converged. So my first several years as a freelance journalist, I was not reporting much on arts and culture things and never on film even though I was an active film programmer in Omaha at different institutions, University of Nebraska at Omaha, Jocelyn Art Museum, and the New Cinema Cooperative or Co-op, which was sort of the precursor to uh, film streams. I started out in public relations. I, I was the, the PR director at the Jocelyn Art Museum, 1984 uh, through 1987, for four years, basically. And so I was very much on the PR track. I didn't, never had a thought of freelance writing, still at that point. Um, I got fired in a downsizing. And then um, I worked very briefly for an advertising agency, and I hated it. I thought I was going to die of a heart attack um, from the stress. So I'm glad I left that as soon as I did. And... Now it was like, what do I do? I'm like, at this point, uh, I don't know, 29, something like that. And so I went, I sought advice from a mentor of mine, the late Robert T. Riley. Robert T. Riley, or Bob Riley, was one of my journalism instructors at UNO. Bob Riley was one of the most prolific writers that Nebraska has ever produced. So he, name a medium, and Bob Riley wrote for it literally, and uh, published locally, regionally, nationally. And I knew of his freelance writing, and I said, do you think I can do this? And, and I was scared, and I was totally unsure whether I was up for it, and he encouraged me. And so little by little, I began venturing into the world of freelance writing. And I was working a regular job by the time I really started going down that road. And so I was working at the American Red Cross simply as what they call a tele-recruiter, one of those people who calls people up who have been platelet or plasma donors asking them to sign up to give again. So I did that for 13 years. On the side, I was establishing myself or trying to as a freelance writer. And so early on, I was writing for things like Nebraska Health System for a magazine that they produced then called Healthplex Magazine. I was writing a family life series for Woodman Life Insurance or Woodman of the World. 
Um, I was doing some writing for the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And, and so a, a variety of clients, corporate, nonprofit, combination thereof. And uh, I was just trying to make it happen. So what happened was <laughs> um, I'm about seven years into this, something like that, seven or eight years into this. Um, and I read a cover profile of Alexander Payne in the Reader newspaper. And, uh, you know, I'm this film buff guy, this film programmer guy. Um, I knew of Alexander Payne. This profile was done when his very first feature was released, Citizen Ruth, which I saw and greatly admired. I was, um, I was disappointed in this cover profile on him. And I basically challenged myself that if I was given the opportunity to profile someone like him with my passion for film and growing knowledge of cinema history and things like that, that um, I would do justice to him more than that piece had done. So I approached the reader um, and they didn't really know me because I wasn't being, you know, published in general interest magazines or newspapers at that time. It was all in these niche spaces, right? You know, Healthplex magazine, uh, oh, the Midlands Business Journal. <laughs> I was writing for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they must have asked me for a sample or like, hey, where can I see your I must have provided something to them. So they said, yeah, well, anyway, they gave me a couple of assignments and they were very pleased with what I did. And then I pitched them the idea well, you know, I heard that this Alexander Payne guy that you did a cover profile on a couple of years ago, he has a new film he's developing in Omaha, Election. So I made, you know, they gave me the assignment and I made the inquiries and set it up. And, you know, it was, I'm not saying it was with that that I really uh, felt fully invested as a freelance writer or fully identified that I'm, I've arrived, but it helped. But it was really those first those first string of pieces that I did for the reader, and uh, it it just kind of set me, sent me on my way. So you're set on your way, and so much must have changed. But what has changed in terms of the business of writing, how you can make a living at it, and also the kinds of stories that people want to be told? Let me start with the um, make a living at it. So in a way, it's almost never been possible to make a living as a full-time freelance journalist in Omaha, Nebraska, to my knowledge. I mean, I kind of did it and I've done it, but you know, you have to be uh, crazy enough or, or okay living in relative poverty. I mean, it, it is what it is. So today, I absolutely cannot make a living just from journalism. The only thing that keeps me employed as a full-time writer is that I have book projects on top of the journalism projects. I don't always have book projects. I just happen to have two at the same time now. So this has been an unusually good year. But what will next year look like? Because those book projects are on their final legs. I think I have one lined up for 2023, but this has happened before where I thought I had something lined up and then it disappeared. So that's that's part of the, 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 the new reality. But on the journalism side, so just before the pandemic hit, um, really the end of 2019, very beginning, Jan let's say January of 2020, I had lost 75% of my journalism clients. And that was due to uh, downsizings by them, um, regime changes on their end, um, and in some cases just going out of business. And so I was floundering and very, very anxious. And um, I was fortunate enough to get on with an organization, a new media platform called Noise, North Omaha Information Support Everyone. So they kind of saved my journalism career. And for about two and a half, two and a quarter years, I did a lot of work for Noise. They gave me work. And then some of the media clients that had downsized and had regime changes where I was had lost a lot of 
traction with and lost a lot of assignments, almost literally dwindling to nothing, um, started giving me more work. The journalism portion of my career has built up, and then I added yet new clients, uh, Flatwater Free Press, which has been a welcome addition for all sorts of reasons, particularly from a uh, economic standpoint uh, for contributing writers because they pay exceedingly well um, by this market standards. That's great, um, but you can only get a limited number of assignments with them in any given calendar year. So it helps. I'm appreciative, grateful, um, but that still doesn't make it possible to, to make a comfortable living as a freelancer. And I've added more clients since then as well. So I, I, I have a nice stable of journalism clients, but still without the book projects, um, I would be in, in a hard, bad place. And I'd, I'd probably have to look for a job job. You said something earlier about Alexander Payne and that cover story that you thought could have been better. Mm-hmm. And you swore that you, if given that opportunity, would do justice by him. And I feel like you're describing this responsibility you feel to the interviewee to do justice by them. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. So would you talk a little more about the different relationships you have with the interview subjects, your responsibility to them, and also perhaps between you and readership? Yeah, no, glad to glad to do that. Well, here's the thing, you know, it's it's um, the kind of journalism um, that I engage in. Um, I think people, you know, naturally, if they've never done this, if they've not lived in this world, they don't have a clear idea or even a a baseline from which to, you know, make 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 even educated guesses about. So the thing of it is. Back to practical realities. Um, I'm only getting paid so much. So with the exception of Flatwater Free Press, and I'm talking about journalism clients now, it, 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 it can be a newspaper or a magazine, it can be a, a, a platform like Noise or whatever the case may be. The, the exception being Flatwater Free Press, who is paying a rate that is commensurate with professional skills that are being contributed to them and paying a rate that is paying for your time. All the others do not. So why is that important? Well, okay. So I'm, I'm assigned to interview and profile an individual. Um, I can only uh, portion out a certain amount of time that makes sense First of all, for the person I'm interviewing on the, based on their own schedules um, and for myself in terms of what I'm getting compensated. Um, because the number, if, you know, if I calculate the number of hours I spend on one individual project, that is cor- correspondence with the subject and editor, <laughs> research online, going to the interview if it's in person or even if it's not, preparing for the interview, doing the interview, transcribing the interview, writing and editing and rewriting the story, formatting and submitting the story, it's a number of hours. And if I would tell you what that would work out to in terms of an hourly wage, it would not be pleasant and it's it's low. So it's important that people at least have an appreciation for that. So, so why am I even bringing that up? Well, I, in an ideal world, I would like to spend more time with the subjects. I could choose to do that, but why would I? Because no one's paying me for that time. I mean, at the end of the day, I have to live. I have to pay bills. So it sounds crass, but you can only understand this if you're trying to make a living, as I am and have been doing for a, a number of years now, with my only, primarily, my my sole source of income being writing. So it is what it is. It's it's not ideal, um, and uh, you you do the best you can. So it's kind of a magic act uh, that I'm I'm pulling off here. So I spend the time that I spend with the subject, 
it's usually not more than an hour. And in that hour, I'm trying to represent the totality of this human being <laughs> for readers, or at least a semblance of that totality. And I'm trying to do that in as few as 500 words or 800 words, or a really long story by today's standards, 1,200 words. Do you feel like you're, insofar as you can identify this, living your purpose? Yeah, you know, I, I've gone back and forth on that. You know, my, my life partner, uh, she will lament how many times I've and moaned about the vagaries of this life and this work. And But yeah, at the end, you know, when, it, when you come right down to it, I think I made my peace with that a long time ago because there were the people in my life, uh, when my parents were still living, you know, they were highly skeptical about my going down this road. They had no experience with anyone being a writer, certainly, you know, they would always ask me, well, why aren't you working for the World Herald? And I would get asked that a lot, which is a nice, which is a very logical question. But I, I have never been an employee of a media organization ever in my entire working life, for better or worse. I've always been an independent contractor, a contributing writer or a commissioned writer. And so, that's not about to change. You know, I'm going on 65. And uh, so, yeah, it, it gets back to my understanding that uh, I think I have a role to play and I don't make, I think, any more of it than there is. Um, I'm pretty good at what I do. I'm still employable. <laughs> and um, I still mostly enjoy what what I do. It, it, there is a pleasure, there is a satisfaction in at least feeling like you got it right. Now, at the end of the day, it's up for the subject or the client or the reader or the consumer to decide whether, you know, it works for them. How have you changed because of the work you've done? And not just the work, but specifically the interactions you've had with other people. And this is harder to ask because you're not in their heads and hearts. But so far as you know, how have your subjects changed because you've interviewed them, you've heard their story and shared it? So how have you changed and how have they changed? I think I'm, I have more empathy for people and for the human condition than I did as a young man. And that's partly just the aging process, right? My own aging process. And it's Partly, certainly, because I have met, you know, as the old saying goes, people from every walk of life. And so being exposed to that diversity of thought and experience, I can't say that I draw on it specifically, but I know it's in me and it has affected the way I see people, the way I see the world. It doesn't mean I, I'm still not cynical <laughs> and uh, that I, I still don't have all sorts of uh, negative thoughts uh, about even some of the subjects I, I write about. But, you know, that's also just being human. And, and I'm, I've become more honest about who I am, warts and all. And that's, that's good. And, that, and, and probably all of that shows up in my work and I'm probably not even conscious of it. And, and that's okay too, because that's why my story about subject A would be different than your story about subject A. As far as how my work or someone's experience with me might change them, if I'm proud of anything, it's that I think I do give voice to people's voices. I believe in the primacy of people's own words. Let's say it's a profile piece on an individual. I want to integrate into that story, into that article, as much as possible, and sometimes to the dismay of my editors, that person's voice in their own words. Because um, even though the editors they can make great arguments about there's too many quotes here and this really isn't that interesting or important. Um, I, I, beg to, I, I beg to disagree. Uh, I believe maybe that's one of the reasons my work um, can be identified over someone else's work. There, there have to be things that differentiate any writer's work from another writer's work. So, just in the world of local journalism, 
that's one of the things that I stand by. And I always don't have control. I always don't get everything left in my stories that I've written or that I've included. But I am conscious, I think, when I'm interviewing the person, when I'm transcribing the interview with the person, and then writing the piece about the person, I'm trying to be as true as possible to that person. This is a slightly unusual situation in the sense that you are sitting there as the interview subject when more often than not, it's the other way around. And you mentioned earlier, you're thinking that I want something from you as an interviewer. And so this is my opportunity to to invite you. What do you want to give me? Well, you know, I guess what I'm really referring by that is there's an energy exchange that happens. I think a lot of this is just operates on the, on the level of energy, whatever that means. So I want to leave an interview session uh, going back to what we were just talking about, feeling as if, you know, you have plugged into some of my agency as a human being and, and how I represent myself, how I think of myself, and that I'm doing the same with you in terms of how you're presenting yourself. You want something, again, you want something out of me, I want something out of you. And it doesn't have to be anything overly conscious about that or studied or considered. It's just more like, do I feel like you are authentically communicating with me and I, am I authentic, authentically communicating back to you? And is this a kind of an equal exchange and is it you know, a give and take? And if I leave an interview feeling as if that I've given the person their say, right, within the confines of everything we just we talked about, and I've, I've, I've given them a chance to just in their own voice, in their own way, present themselves. And if I feel that they are being pretty straight with me, <laughs> you can't always tell. You don't know. Because most often than not, the only time I'm meeting these people is for that one hour or whatever amount of time we, we've allotted. So, yeah, I, I feel positive leaving an interview if I felt it was like a good energy about it. I really resonate with what you're describing. Many people perhaps feel increasingly as if there is a divide between how we interact with each other as humans. And everything you were just describing feels as if it could be a lesson for us in terms of how we conduct our lives writ large. And I wonder if that seems an accurate observation and if you feel as if there is something in that about how we could live our lives a little more humanly with each other. Well, there, there's something to be said for looking somebody in the, in the eye and just feeling that you're having an honest moment with each other. It can be a fleeting moment. It can be an extended moment. As I said, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to the most recent interviews that I did, one in person, which anymore is exceedingly rare, at least for me, this, this writer, and the other one was uh, via Zoom. I felt equally good about each interview. Two very different people who do different things in life and in, in their prof their professional pursuits. But I left each feeling as if we, you know, there's that word that's maybe overused, that we connected, okay? We connected at least to the point on the negotiables. So they entered the, that experience with their expectations and what they want out of it. And, and I felt good about it. And I sensed that they felt good about it, right? And so that's all you can ask for. And so then we may never meet again, but I can then proceed from that point forward to write what I hope will be an honest representation of what happened in those, in those moments that we shared together. And so what is, can we intuit anything larger around that. I mean, I, th I think it is that very thing is this try to set aside as many of the pretenses and preconceived notions as possible and try to make the exchange, however it happens, as honest as possible and just let it be what it is and, and don't try to impose anything on it. In what we're doing here and what I do as a journalist, things are always being imposed because my job is to ask a series of questions and to get extract a certain amount of information that I need to do my job. But of course, the person expects that. And, and so in some cases, they require the questions ahead of time, so, which I don't like to do. Yeah, I think it's just that, Stuart. It's just if, if we can just 
be human with each other as much as possible. Just cut out the BS. And I think that's what a lot of us are craving anymore, especially with where we've arrived at culturally. Here you are, more than three decades into a a career doing this, is clearly not the money or fame. There is something that is pulling you, almost compelling you, your magnificent obsession, as, as you say, to do this. What is it about this art and craft of interviewing and telling stories that is so compelling for you? I think part of it is the challenge of it. You know, part of it is, if you, I think if you're a good journalist, um, you know, you have to have a good sense of curiosity about the world around you, right? And about people that you don't ordinarily associate with. They're just in a totally different field than yours. They have a different experience, a different background. So the, all of those things interest me. And so, yeah, the, the, the job at the end of the day is how do I get somebody's attention and get their eyes on the story? And as, as I said at the top, I mean, you can be given the same base material as me and your story would read very differently than mine about the same subject. And that's great. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, right? So it's a it's a game that we all play. We, we play it as writers. We play it as consumers of writing. We play it as, you know, media professionals, no matter what our field of endeavor is. In your case, this with this podcast, right, this radio show. And, and here I am, the guest, and, and in some ways I'm conscious of wanting to give you what you want, and I'm conscious of what I want to give you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a it's kind of a game that way, and 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 I and again I don't mean that in a cynical way. It, it's part of who we are and what we do as human beings, right? Uh, so we're we're all just trying to make sense of the world, and part of my job just happens to be trying to make sense of this person or this organization or this event or what or whatever it is for you as a reader. But then it's up to you as the reader. What are you going to do with it? My guest today has been Leo Adam Bega, author and journalist. Leo, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.